This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation and here we are again, PK. Great news, we're going to be joined soon by Lenore Taylor, editor of The Guardian. But first, let's go back in time to the weekend, only to the weekend, when the Albanese government changed its mind on pandemic leave payments for casual workers. As we predicted last week here on the party room, PK, the government bowed to the inevitable. It backed down on its plan to cut the payments at the end of July. It was, you know, really an impossible position to maintain given the rising rates of COVID. The health minister himself telling us that millions of Australians will be infected over the coming weeks and months. Why then would they make it harder for people, casual workers particularly, to stay home when they're sick? Why, why, why? Anyway, PK, the government got there in the end with a little help from their friends in the National Cabinet. Yes, they certainly did. So the Albanese government was feeling intense searing heat. It was a sunburn, right? Um, as as the unions and employers, medical experts, even Labor MPs uh, were critical of their decision allowing this measure to expire. And also, I know people very concerned that they were just leaning on that the previous government did this. Well, yeah, okay, now you're the government. And the pressure reached boiling point on the weekend. The Prime Minister um really seemed to get it very quickly when he got back from the Pacific <laughs> Islands Forum. He seemed to not miss the memo or not miss reading the room then very suddenly. He brought forward the already urgent National Cabinet meeting to Saturday. So he brought it, what, two days forward. Um, that, I believe, was about just absolutely just dealing with this huge problem that had emerged, not waiting a minute longer. And after consulting with his state counterparts, he reinstated the pandemic leave payment, $750 a week until the end of September. So really at the to the end of the winter, a temporary measure to see us through the winter and the peak, which I think is a reasonable way of dealing with it, given, yes, I think there is a case for trying to change the paradigm where we're not consistently always in this COVID setting forever, but we're in it right now. The measure is going to cost $780 million. That cost is going to be split 50-50 between the federal government and the states. So the states are lifting here. New South Wales and Queensland really pushed for this national cabinet meeting to start with, and also for the reinstatement. And here's what the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet had to say on RM Breakfast about the need for these payments to be reintroduced. If the state is taking away people's liberty and the opportunity for them to provide for their families, and the state has an obligation uh, to uh, provide financial support uh, to um, to those people who are doing the right thing and following um, those public health orders that are in place. And I think that's absolutely bang on, right? So let's just be clear here. Under the COVID laws, you have to isolate legally when you get COVID, when you know you have COVID. So there, there, it's not like any other virus. Mm. 
where you don't have to isolate. Perhaps people should. That's another debate. But you don't have to. If I've got a cold, there is no legal obligation on me to isolate, although I do wear a mask and try not to give it to people. Well, it's not a very nice thing to do, like to give people a virus you know you're carrying, right? But with COVID, it's not a choice. It's not meant to be a choice. So his point is you have to then follow it with financial support for casuals. Um, Okay, that's right. Right now, it's only going to follow them till the end of September. As I believe, Fran, as long as that legal requirement is there, that it has to follow. And that's exactly what the New South Premier said too. Now, at the same time, he's also arguing that he wants to decrease the time or get medical advice to five days rather than seven. That's been parked. That's not about to happen. Prime Minister didn't support that. That's not, that's not the advice right now. But what's interesting here is that uh, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, was painted as having a doing a backflip, Fran, and it was a backflip because he was digging in. He spoke to me and others and he was really digging in on some of this. But is it just a case, and it's a good case, of listening to the advice? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you feel like saying no shit, Sherlock, don't you, really, yeah. when, when you go, oh, <laughs> Say it yeah. again, Fred, oh, say it yeah, again. no shit, Sherlock, as long as it's a law, we're going to pay you. I mean, that seems to be obvious. Well, duh. And the government was sort of arguing that, you know, black was white in the days leading up to that cabinet meeting where they switched. But, you know, actually, I think we can get rid of politically loaded words like backflip for a while when it comes to talking about health decisions in a COVID pandemic. I personally prefer the term reset because, yes, like you say, the government listened. The states were adamant because the health advice was getting stronger and more alarming by the day. As we said last week, PK, there was mixed messaging coming from the government. It was obvious, you know, COVID's coming in force, but we're going to cut the incentives for people to stay home and stop the spread. It just couldn't stand. Anthony Albanese, as you say, read the room and saw that. Meanwhile, the stay home and the stop and spread message has got louder and louder and clearer and clearer by the day. Now employers are being urged by the federal health minister to allow their employees to work from home if they can. The chief medical officer is urging us to mask up again, though, stopping short of mandates. We all know the drill, PK. None of us want our hospitals to be so overcrowded that, you know, when we need hospitalisation, when we need care for anything, we or our loved ones, you know, can't get it because it's just too dangerous in there or they're too... You know, they're too pushed in there. This is not a difficult message. And, and I think the best thing about this week is that the government listened. It didn't dig in. It did change its mind. I think generally in the community, there's a desire for governments to be flexible and accept when current measures or settings aren't sufficient and adjust. It's the times we live in. Doesn't mean they won't cop some political heat sometimes for being too slow, as the Morrison government did at times. But the important thing is that governments do listen to the experts. They do make the policy resets um, in, a, in a timely way. And, and they don't try and, and leave deci- important policy decisions to others, because then that can just take a longer time. And this was a criticism of the Prime Minister Scott Morrison at the time, that, you know, there were crucial decisions that the government should have led on. Instead, it allowed, you know, expert committees to to take the lead and it just took a little longer than it should. So I think, you know, the Albanese government has reset, let me use that term, again, basically just in the nick of time. And they should keep doing it. Well, yeah, you got must listen, <laughs> absolutely, but you need to make decisions too. Look, they're in a conundrum because their view is that the community is sick 
of COVID. Like, mm. and, and I think there is some anecdotal evidence of that. Like if I even mention COVID just to ordinary people I hang out with, not sort of media or poli- political types, people just say, just, can you not even mention that word? Mm. Like people are a jack of it, right? So they figure that's why there's a reluctance for mask mandates and other things. They think that there is a strong message coming to them to shift, to go to another mode. And at the same time, those COVID emergency period where we spent so much money on measures, they also want to get us off that dependence. But uh, we are now facing the biggest wave that we're going to face and the highest hospitalisation numbers. That's mm. what Paul Kelly told me, the chief medical officer, when he came on RM Breakfast, that we're about, we're about to exceed it, the bit bigger than the January wave. So there's also the reality of our system and how it can cope. Um, I also think, though, politically, you call it reset. I think that's a fair enough word. But this was really a baptism of fire for the Albanese government early on in its term. Uh, there is a reluctance from government to do more because they feel like people are over it. But it was, you know, balancing that with genuine concerns from the community, getting it right. It's not easy to get it right. I think it's easier on the sidelines and people often say it's easy for you. I think you're right. It is easier for me as a journalist to see where that that line should come. When you're governing, you've got the fiscal reality, you've got people's concerns that they're over this thing, then you've got the health workers saying, we are bleeding here, we cannot do this, we're so tired and we don't have enough spots. You put that all together and you try and govern. It's actually not easy, but actually reading the room and not digging in and using the kind of trite political lines is the lesson here. Listen early and actually don't be afraid to try and read the room. And and they finally did, but maybe a bit late. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, like we said last week, it was all budgetary. It was all about trying to get the budget back into some, you know, so they could say when when Jim Chalmers stands up in October that they are doing budget repair work. They don't want to spend on anything new, but that's not how life works for a government in a pandemic. So, you know, I I say again, I think sympathy really still in the community. Although you're right, people are sick of it. They they don't want to be, you know, locked up and told what to do. Nevertheless, they do want, as I said before, a government to lead. And sympathy is still on the side, by and large, of the health workers, of the nurses, of those frontline workers who are on our TVs every night saying, we can't manage. It's too much. And, and in response to that, I think people will accept maybe a partial mandates that make sense to people. If our hospitals are overcrowded, we need to stop the spread. Maybe we do have to be told to wear masks in the supermarket again. Maybe that's the level. Maybe the classroom is a bridge too far. I think governments have to consider these things and not be frightened of a community sentiment because I think the community is by and large sensible and, and we all need to be flexible. You just said it, Fran, maybe the classroom's bridge too far. Look, in Victoria, it's been recommended, not mandated but really there's a lot of schools requiring it at the moment, right? My kids have to wear masks in class. They've gone back to school. That's what they have to do. My partner is a teacher. We have to be realistic about what it feels like in those classrooms and not also stigmatise people who don't want to wear masks in those settings because, you know, some of the experiences in those learning environments are very difficult with masks and kids have auditory issues and all sorts of things in terms of how to learn. So... 
we do need a bit of nuance, that's all. Yeah. We just need a bit of nuance and not so much judgment about how to manage the spread, but also where to do it and how to do it. And yeah. I think if we contributed all, you and I, to that part of the conversation, it would be nice rather than, you know, you're, you're for or against. I actually think let's try and get the judgment and the fear out of it. You know, in the first year, the, the fear was really ramped up and it, it was really tough for people. And I think we are in a different phase now where we can ratchet down the fear and certainly ratchet down the judgment. I think this is the perfect time to bring in our guest. Should we do it? Let's do it. <laughs> Lenore Taylor is the editor at The Guardian Australia and joins us in the party room. Hello. Good morning, ladies. Hi, Lenore. Hey, Lenore, Pika and I have just been talking about the government's decision on the weekend to reinstate the pandemic leave payments. You said on the Guardian podcast on Friday that there seemed to be a disconnect between what was happening in public policy and the real world. Then Anthony Albanese read the writing in the real world, called that snap national cabinet meeting, Bob's your uncle, reset, payments restored. Fair enough, lesson learned, end of story, or a warning light about this new government? How did you see this? I think it's easy to not for a government not to respond quickly enough. It's you know changing course is hard. If mm. you if you sort of if the line going around in your head is you know must be careful about the budget, must be careful about the budget. It's easy to not react quickly enough. But I think they had no choice on that matter. You know both in terms of public health, in terms of the equity issues, it was a no brainer. I think they had to do it. I think they did it a bit late. Um, if I was Mark Butler out defending the indefensible for that week, I wouldn't be <laughs> that pleased. Then it gets, you know, shifted again on the weekend. But they got there in the end and, you know, good on them for doing it. I think they did the right thing. I was speaking to the Chief Medical Officer, Professor Paul Kelly, on RM Breakfast. On um, We're recording this on a Thursday. The interview was on Wednesday. And he said there were 5,200 people in our hospitals with COVID. Uh, just 100 cases shy of the peak hospitalisations throughout the entire pandemic. And by the time people listen to this, we may have exceeded it. I don't know how quickly it will happen. He warned that we will exceed that number. So our hospitals are facing massive staff shortages due to sickness. They're going to be bombarded with new patients. He wouldn't give me the number of how high they thought it could go. But let's be honest, modelling isn't always right on this stuff anyway. It clearly is going up. So... It begs the question, Lenore, yes, everyone's over COVID. Yes, we are. It's not over us, <laughs> right? Absolutely. It's, it's all over us. over us. It's all over us. So how does the government manage those competing interests? They want to wean us off the payments. They want to you know, get us over it. And yet it's killing more Australians than it ever has. Mm -hmm. I think it's a difficult balancing act for the government. I mean, on an issue like mask mandates, Anthony Albanese is making the point that you know, if you put a mandate on, you have to be able to enforce it and police it and people are over it and exhausted. You know, personally, I think temporary man mask mandates would be a good idea because of exactly that point, that the health system is at capacity. But I think wherever a government comes down on the side of how much do we still sort of mandate things or push people or how much do we rely on people taking personal responsibility, at the very, very least... I think governments need to be doing a lot more in terms of public education and pushing the message and reminding people of why they still need to be careful, why they still need to wear masks, that this is a collective, taking collective responsibility for the health and well-being of the most vulnerable among us who are dying at record rates. And I think if a government is going to on the side of not mandating things, then they have to really double down on that public health messaging so that people 
don't just block it out and go, well, I'm okay. I've had it in the last month. I'm fairly healthy. And really remember the consequences of it raging through the community like it is in terms of loss of life and in terms of lifestyle for anybody who's immunocompromised Mm. or, you know, in any way susceptible to COVID. And I know the government said that they've got this, I think they've got an $11 million advertising campaign at the moment, which is, I think, largely around raising awareness of antivirals, which is important. But I haven't seen it. I don't mm, think it's I haven't anywhere. seen it. I'm never, no. I never see any of these ad campaigns. And well, maybe I think you don't watch enough right. commercial television, Fran, but, you know, I think... Yeah, but who know, is... I mean, that's the whole point, right? Well, it, yeah. the world is not watching commercial television in the numbers it once used to, so we need to yeah. think and differently here. If they're going to go down this path of, you know, we all take personal responsibility and we're over mandates, fine, but you really need to push that message because the consequences are human. They are human. So they they have to take action there, but there is a whole lot more on their plate at the moment. And I want to sort of pivot to look at what will happen next week for the first sitting week, but also the, the stories that emerge this week. And Lenore, this week, Labor's Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, released this State of the Environment Report. It's a five-year report, looks at what, where we're at in terms of the environment. She says former Coalition Environment Minister Susan Lee refused to release it when she was in government, and we know that. And we can see probably why... <laughs> Given it, if it's the five-year report card, it means it's the report card that all happened under the previous government. It wasn't a great report card. Australia has lost more mammal species than any other continent. We're among the top 15 emitters of greenhouse gases globally. We're destroying Indigenous heritage at an unacceptable rate. Lenore, it's dire, this picture. What should we read into what the government might do to respond? Because it has a lot of competing interests. Yeah, it does. So the one thing that they will do is either revamp or or completely rework the EPBC Act, which is the main act for the protection of the environment. The former government was also sitting on a report by Graham Samuel about that. And I think those laws aren't fit for purpose anymore. And the rate of deterioration that was laid bare by that report means that you know, we really, this isn't a theoretical thing anymore. This isn't sometime in the future. There are 19 ecosystems in Australia showing signs of collapse right now. Every single ecosystem is threatened by global heating. And that's the point where I think the jury's really out about what the government will do or how they will do it. It's the real pressure point. There's been quite a lot of pressure on governments in general to put a climate trigger into that act. So to take global heating into account when making decisions affecting the natural environment. Tanya Plimasek was not, she didn't rule it out. She didn't sound enormously enthusiastic about the idea. She says that there are other ways of achieving the same ends, and there are. But I think that will be the real rub for the government. I think they will probably, you know, amend environmental legislation, but you can't ignore the impact of climate on ecosystems and on our natural environment. It's, it, it, you know, it's real and it's now. And I think that's their challenge. Well, let's go to that because the, you say the government will probably amend. They're going to be under pressure because when Parliament returns next week, the legislation to reduce emissions by 43% by 2030, that's Labor's target, will be introduced and the government wants it locked in. It needs the support of the Greens. It's probably going to get the support of another crossbencher in the Senate, David Pocock. But the Greens aren't fans of the bill. Adam Bant described the legislation and the target as weak. They want some changes, which the government maintains 
I've got a mandate for this target. So both are promising good faith negotiations, but how much negotiating do you think will occur? How much change? And do you think the government would go so far as a a climate trigger? Would that be its way of locking in its domestic target of 43%, but also taking notice, if you like, of the Greens' other major demand, which is no new coal mines or gas fields, which is a pretty big bar for the government to jump, but which goes directly to our emissions export? Because right now the 43% takes no note of of the Mm. the emissions we export, the so-called scope three emissions. We are the world's second largest exporter of coal and of gas. So it's a big part of our story, but it's not actually covered in this legislation, is it, in these targets? No. From what they're saying at the outset, it seems to me that if they go into these negotiations with goodwill, they should be able to find a way through. And the Greens are saying they would like to see a ratchet mechanism, so they 43% is inadequate, and, and it is you know, inadequate when you look at what our fair share of 1.5 degree global warming should be. What does that mean? Well, I mean, it can mean a lot of things, but at the very least it means that if a future government wants to increase that target, they can. It's mm. not sort of set in stone. And that doesn't seem unreasonable to me. I think that if we get on with this, given where... Uh, business is at, given how quickly technology is changing, I reckon we'll meet Mm. 43% quite easily. Mm. And a future government might well want to increase that target. And also remember, under the Paris Agreement, we're supposed to increase that target. So I don't think the idea of leaving a way open for the target to go up under certain circumstances I don't think that's a crazy idea at all. And also the government hasn't ruled it out. And I think that would go a long way to bridge the difference between Labor and the Greens. The the climate trigger and the no new fossil fuel projects is a different ask. I actually thought it was quite disappointing to see Anthony Albanese borrow some of the same tired old lines from the coalition that doing that could just mean that emissions went up more because people would be using coal from other countries. Because Indonesia's I mean, coal's dirtier than ours. You know, like yeah, we have like... debunked that a, a million times. The International Energy Agency says that we can't open up big new fossil fuel areas. You know, this isn't a radical proposition. I think the government's trying to hedge its bets and not have the fight right now. They're saying, oh, well, they'd have to stack up economically. They'd have to stack up in, environmentally. You know, it's a bit of a, look, don't think it's going to be holus bolus, but we're not mm. going to rule it out. Okay, fine, but don't peddle those same old lines about, you know, oh, they're going to get it from somewhere, so it may as well be us, like seriously. But what else have they got to do? And I'm wondering that if the pressure is going to come internationally. I mean, at the moment, you know, as we've been talking about here on the podcast, Europe, America, they're all embracing the new government because we are talking the talk and, and bringing the targets to the table. But no one is sort of pressuring us publicly yet about these exported emissions. Do you think that will be happening privately now or will start to happen more publicly? Look, I think that other countries are probably going to let the government settle in and make good on what they've done so far. I mean, we've been such a basket case on this issue for so long that it would be really good to just lock in an achievable policy and get going on it. And I think a lot of people looking at it think if that happens... Progress will speed up. People will Mm. see the sky doesn't fall in. People will see that it isn't, you know, we don't, the lights don't go out and ambition will increase over time. But that is a bit of a leap of faith. But I do think the government's got a bit of a honeymoon period because they have 
uh, got a policy that is better than the former government's. Now, it's pretty clear um, that Anthony Albanese is unlikely to get much support from the opposition. I think it was really interesting and perhaps instructive to hear that even after the election, where we heard a very strong climate change message, undisputed uh, from the electorate, particularly, of course, in those seats that fell to independence, but more broadly in the electorate, Liberal MP Holly Hughes had this to say about, you know, the action um, and this 43% reduction. Here she is. Climate change is not Australia's problem, it's not a regional problem, and our emissions are 1.3%. We can shut everything down and we will make zero difference. Now, just worth mentioning, she's the Assistant Minister for Climate Change. That's uh, the Liberal um, shadow, Holly Hughes there. Lenore, what does that statement tell us about the Coalition's position on climate policy? Uh, We know that there was a bit of a captain's call from... Peter Dutton not to vote for the legislation. There are others inside, Simon Birmingham and others, the moderates, who think, hang on a minute, like, can we really not vote for this? But now it looks like Peter Dutton's view might be prevailing. Well, that statement is utterly irresponsible. It's irresponsible and incorrect. And I think the coalition has got a whole lot of reckoning to do on this issue. I mean, straight after the election, the moderates, like Simon Birmingham, were trying to sort of stake a claim and say, look what happened in the election. We really can't go on like this. Internally, you know, the leaders made his views clear, but I do think they've got a lot of talking and reckoning to do because they're positioning themselves as a complete outlier when it comes to global opinion, business opinion, scientific opinion. I mean, they're really putting their heads in the sand. Lenore, also this week, I mean, the government's getting on with a few things. And another thing that they'd promised and they've now announced more details of is the review into the Reserve Bank, the first review of the central bank since the 90s. The review will look at appointments to the board, like who sits around that board, uh, the governance structure, accountability. The treasurer, Jim Chalmers, says he wants the review to ensure that Australia has the world's best and most effective bank. In other words, he doesn't want us just to look backwards and criticise and punish for bad forecasts, but wants to get to how we make it work better. The Prime Minister, though, seemed to have a more immediate task, or should I say warning, for the RBA around interest rate rises. Of course, the Reserve Bank will make its decisions based upon uh, their assessment of where the economy's at, but they need to be careful that they don't overreach. They need to be careful. This coming from the Prime Minister, it's pretty unusual for a Prime Minister to give a public warning to the Reserve Bank like that, isn't it, Lenore? Anthony Albanese would know that. So what was he doing? And importantly, how do you think the Reserve Bank Governor will hear it? Well, you know, I think it's entirely reasonable to have a review of the Reserve Bank. Absolutely. Um, I think that is absolutely fine. No institution should be above scrutiny and they're in a really critical role right now at this point in our economic history. But particularly when that is on the table, I don't think it's appropriate for the Prime Minister to be even sort of gently jawboning the independent RBA, even if he does preface it by saying, yes, they're very, they're independent. Mm. I mean, that was a gentle jawboning of the RBA. And so why, why did he do it, do you think? Because he would know that, wouldn't he? Because he's really scared that they're going to raise interest rates <laughs> too quickly and it'll be politically difficult. But they're meant to make those judgments purely on economic grounds, not on what he did or put on the government of the day. No. And he knows that as well. He does, but they actually don't really... They clearly are not fans of the settings they're working within, Lenore. 
Yeah, yes, but in particular, if you've announced a review, in particular at that time, you have to be very careful to not look like you're giving them a gentle nudge about what they should or shouldn't do. Well, especially as the same, on the same day, or I think it was the same day, that the Reserve Bank Governor was giving a speech basically saying it's going to get to 2.5% mm. and probably higher. So that's we're only at 1.35 now. So there's a way to go, a lot of pain. So you think it's just a government sort of trying to tread a fine line, so to speak, to do whatever they can to try and nudge it down, not up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't see any other way to interpret what the Prime Minister said. I don't know what, I mean, what else do you mean by overreach? Like what, what, what else could it mean? And I just, I don't think it's appropriate. It's interesting. I had Jane Hume, the shadow finance minister on and, you know, put it to her and she didn't rebuke him for saying it. I, I thought that was interesting. Is that because. Mm, do you want to be the politician in favour of higher interest? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I don't know. that's the thing, right? <laughs> like they all just don't want higher interest rates. Yeah, well, okay. And we've heard a different tune too from Jim Chalmers rather than the old line I heard a lot from the RBA but also backed by the government previously, which is Australians have great buffers, you know, they've paid forward mm, their mortgages, mm, mm. they're doing, they're living their best lives, Australians, so they'll be all right. Um, now, well, Jim Chalmers isn't saying that. Um, he's largely saying, well, there's going to be pain. And there is. And I would be concerned too if I was sitting in his seat. However... We have an independent reserve bank for a reason. And, you know, if you start making even slightly politicised comments like that, you also have to be careful for what you wish for because then you can also be asked to bear some of the responsibility if the bank does things that, you know, people don't like. Mm. I mean, it's sort of the, the, the complete independence of the reserve bank can also work for governments politically if they just leave it alone. Yeah, well, you know, Paul Keating used to say he had mm-hmm. control of the levers and then we did something about that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a good idea. Um, so, Lenore, interest rates are going to go up. That's what the Reserve Bank Governor's told us. There will be a lot more, a significant amount mm-hmm. more pain for mortgage holders. What do you think the government can or is likely to do about that? Will it be forced to do things it doesn't want to do, like maybe extending that petrol tax discount or some other kind of direct support to help ease the pain? In the face well, of I hope not because that would be dumb policy, right? That would be really silly policy. The, the sad thing is that the big levers that could take the crazy out of our housing market, they've already said they won't touch. So they're looking at short-term measures and there aren't very many of them that make economic sense. And, you know, personally, I think the idea of continuing um, a petrol price subsidy is would would be a really bad idea. I mean, if they've got some money to splash around, it would be much better spent, I think, trying to ameliorate the terrible, inequitable, horrible effects of the pandemic than let everybody drive their cars a bit more. But, you know, I mean, they're in a difficult position. They're mm. in a, they're, they've taken the reins of government at a very difficult economic time. Yeah, they have. And that means that the next sitting week, the first next week will be... Will be worth watching. Can't wait. I can't wait. With all those independents and all of it, I cannot wait. Lenore, you were the perfect guest. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a lot. See you, Lenore. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you. And, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. And it's time for our question time. In fact, next week there'll be like a real question time because Parliament comes back. But this is our question time. And Dylan has sent in a question and he asks, 
The stage three tax cuts seem like absolute madness to me. I understand Labor would rather eat a leg than be seen to break an election promise, but surely blowing hundreds of billions of dollars a year on tax cuts for the wealthy, many of whom have largely done quite well during the pandemic, is demonstrably counter to what is needed. Will the Labor Party simply fall back on its inherited policy mantra, or is there a path for some actual courage and common sense here? Fran, you take that one. Dylan, good question. Uh, Look, there is a path simply because the the legislated tax rate tax cuts, and they are legislated, so it's not so much even an election promise, though, of course, Labor had to pledge that it would enforce or or go through with the legislation, Um, but they are legislated, but they're not due to come in or to take effect until 2024. So that's some time away. If there is patently obvious to everybody that money is going to be needed and better spent on aged care or childcare or our hospitals, seeing where this pandemic goes or whatever it is, you know, there is always wriggle room. There is always wriggle room. I think that's just true. But it is fraught. It is politically fraught for for a government. So it depends what the political dynamic is between the opposition and the government at the time, I think. It depends what the sentiment in the community is and who's making the case for change and winding back. I don't think they would scrap it all together. It would be a matter of, if let's use the word again, nuanced, nuanced mm-hmm. them. They're worth $15 billion, I think, PK, correct me if I'm wrong. But they are some time away. So let's just wait and see. But certainly Labor couldn't just junk them all together. I don't think that can happen. I'm not in the know of of what kind of nuancing could be done. But, you know, we'll, we'll start hearing about that soon enough. Yeah, I think it is pretty hard when you've got such a whopping deficit to kind of keep justifying the tax cuts. I'll say that. It's hard. Sure. But equally, I do think political commitments matter. And abandoning promises is fraught. And, you know, of course, circumstances change. But in this case, they hadn't changed that much from when the promise happened. Like, well, we really knew we were in debt and deficit. Well, like yeah, when they... we, we knew, but it's gotten worse, right? You know, the aged care spending is clear for all to see. The pandemic is going on much longer than we thought. Our hospitals clearly aren't sort of fit for the fight. So there's going to need to be money spent on these things. So... I think there's that. And also, you know, governments do backtrack on legislative promises. The, the, the Morrison government, although the um, superannuation guarantee was legislated to go up to 12%, clearly there was some positioning going on and the government was considering maybe not delivering on that somehow. We didn't get to that point. They never, they never backed down publicly. But clearly there was some thinking and manoeuvring and preparation going on. So it's not unheard of, is it? Not unheard of, but so risky. So I, I, at this stage, can only read it, as you say, circumstances change. So you answered that beautifully because it's true. <laughs> but at this stage, as we record this Thursday morning, uh, there there is no political appetite from the Labor Party to abandon that or change it because they think it's too risky. Um, I think some would love that cashola to pay on the other things, but um, whether they're prepared to do it, I cannot see it. Send your questions in. We love getting them. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you, all of you who sent some in this week. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss 
an episode. That is the ideal place to get it. I'm going to spruik that one almost exclusively now. The ABC Listen app, easiest place, download straight away. If you don't have it on your phone and you run into PK in the street, look out because she will. (laughs) She has been known to grab your phone and download it for you. I have been. And don't call the police, please, because (laughs) I know know it's not allowed. But, you know, sometimes you just have to take matters into your own hands. All right, that's it for the party room this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran.